Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We are now in Isaiah chapter 33, and we're going to look at the very end of this chapter together. It has huge prophetic significance. The barbarians of this 6th century BC are the are the uh, would would speak Akkadian, likely a language of the that the Israelites did not understand. And so that would weigh heavily on our, our contextual understanding of the text. But in the end, what's coming, what God's prophesying, what God's promising in this text is the forgiveness of the iniquity of his people. And for that reason, they need not fear even being conquered. So let's look at the end of Isaiah chapter 33. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. You will see a vast land your mind will meditate on the past terror. Where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? Where is the one who spied out our defenses? You will no longer see the barbarians, a people whose speech is difficult to comprehend, who stammer, stammer in a language uh, that is not understood. This was likely the Assyrians who spoke Akkadian, but there's another interpretation of this passage where it speaks to all nations who are against God compared to the people of God who are within him. So there's a, there's a now and a not yet application of this chapter as well. There's that law of dual interpretation that it meant something immediately to the people of Judah, but it also means something to those of us in the New Testament as well. You will no longer see the barbarians, a people whose speech is difficult to comprehend, who stammer in a language that is not understood. Look at Zion, the city of our festival times. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful pasture, a tent that does not wander. Its tent pegs will not be pulled up, nor will any of its cords be loosened. The imagery of Jerusalem as if it were a tent could speak to the fragility of Jerusalem compared to what's coming. And yet they need not fear because God is going to keep them in place. I think there's something very humbling about this. For the majestic one, our Lord will be there, a place of rivers and broad streams where ships that our road will not go and majestic vessels will not pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. And that is a memory verse right there. That's Isaiah 33, verse 22. And I'll say it one more time because it's worth repeating. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. He's the ultimate judge because everyone has to stand before him one day. He is the lawgiver. Literally, this is actually why we had 10 commandment monuments outside of courthouses, not because we're under the delusion that we're a theocracy, right? For crying out loud, you know, look at some of the sins we commit and even legislate and fund with taxes. No, we know that all laws have to come from some sense of authority. And the ultimate authority behind all of moral argument itself is God. He's the law giver. He showed us from on high what is right and what is wrong. And based on that argument, we then enforce other laws. So even laws that we enforce as societies borrow upon the assumed moral authority that cannot come from nihilism. If nihilism were true, meaning all everything's meaningless, it's all nothing at all, then there's, then laws don't mean anything either. But we, as Christians, know that God gave us the law, and Jews agree with us in this text as well, right? That he is the judge, he is the lawgiver, the Lord is our king, okay? Like we talked about at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, 
the great commission is given with all the authority of heaven and earth. That's why Christians can, with clear consciences to the glory of God, violate the stupid laws of North Korea, for example, and smuggle Bibles in. He will save us. Obviously, who else is going to save us? There's nobody else. There's no one else who went to the cross. There's no one else who resurrected. There's no one else who has this redemptive plan in place. There's no, no pagan faith system uh, offers salvation like this. He is both the judge and the lawgiver. That's quite a judge right there. When the judge wrote the law himself, you know that he's enforcing it with absolute integrity. Verse 23, here the audience of the text seems to shift. Your ropes are slack. They cannot hold the base of the mast or spread out the flag. Then abundant spoil will be divided. The lame will plunder it. All right, even the lame among the people of God will, uh, will, be, will be blessed. I think it's speaking to the downfall of Assyria and the downfall of, of evil itself. And even those who are lame, who are in the Lord, will, will uh, divide up plunder for themselves. And none there will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So when it speaks to those who dwell there in verse 24, it's coming, it's referring back to Zion, Jerusalem. Okay, it's referring to the people who are, uh, who are kept safe by the Lord. All right, um, did I accidentally skip this verse? Let me see, where is the accountant? Where is the tribute collector? Where is the one who spied out our defenses? No, I did not skip that. Good. All right. Uh, your mind will meditate on the past terror. This is, this is about, this is, this is again evoking the same thing that we saw earlier in their warnings not to align with Judah. All right. Like our stratagems didn't work. The things that we planned for ourselves, uh, man, if they go against the will of God, they're just not going to work because God's sovereign. His will is going to be done, period. And then even when God blesses us, even when, even when we do end up safe and restored, it's not because of anything that we did. It's all, it's all to the glory of the Lord. See what, how, how much we have in common as New Testament believers with the original recipient, uh, original recipients in, in Judah. We do have a lot in common with them. And you can also see how this is a prophecy in duality. It speaks both to encroaching Assyria and to ultimate justice. It speaks as well, uh, it speaks as well to the coming events of, of, of revelation. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty, you will see a vast land. Here's where I want to close because there's no question here uh, what this means in verse 17. This, the king is God himself. He is the lawgiver. He is the judge. He will save us. He is our king. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. We've seen this before in the book of Isaiah. Look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. Your eyes will see the king. Let that heavenly hope, as a New Testament believer who worships the same God as the original recipients in ancient Judah, let that promise that you will one day see your king be a salve to your soul. All right, say it right now. One day I will see the king. One day I will see the king. I pray that this blesses you. I pray that your eyes do see the king one day. I'm Jesse. I'll see you at our next devotion.